0: Chapter 4, Part 1 of The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hawaii in May 2022. The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922 by various authors. The Problem by George Mallory. 1. It is very natural that mountaineers, particularly if they are members of the Alpine club, should wish success to the average expedition, for in a sense it is their own adventure. And yet their sympathies must often wobble. It is not always an undiluted pleasure to hear of new ascents in the Alps, or even in Great Britain, for half the charm of climbing mountains is born in visions preceding this experience visions of what is mysterious, remote, inaccessible. By experience we learn that we may pass to another world and come back, we rediscover the accessibility of summits appearing impregnable, and so long as we cannot without a tremor imagine ourselves upon a mountain's side, that mountain holds its mystery for us. But when we often hear about mountaineering expeditions on one or another of the most famous peaks in the world, are told of conquests among the most remote and difficult ranges, or others continually repeated in well-known centres, we come to know too well how accessible mountains are to skilful and even to unskilful climbers. The imagination falters, and it may happen that we find ourselves one day thinking of the most surprising mountain of all, with no more reverence than the practised golfer has for an artificial bunker. It was so, I was once informed by a friend, that he caught himself thinking of the mutterhorn, and he wondered whether he shouldn't give up climbing mountains until he had recovered his reverence for them. A shorter way, I thought, was to wait until the weather broke and then climb the Matterhorn every day till it should be calm and fine again, and when he pondered this suggestion he had no need to test its power, for he very soon began to think again of the Matterhorn as he ought to think. But from the anguish of discovering his heresy, he cherished a lesson and afterwards would never consent to read or hear accounts of mountaineering nor even to speak of his own exploits. This was a commendable attitude in him, and I can feel no doubt, thinking of his case, that however valuable a function it may have been of the Alpine club in its infancy to propagate not only the gospel, but the knowledge of mountains, the time has come when it should be the principal aim of any such body not only to suppress the propagation of a gospel already too popular, but also to shelter its members against that superabundance of knowledge which must needs result from accumulating records. Hereafter, of contemporary exploits, the less we know the better. Our heritage of discovery among mountains is rich enough, too little remains to be discovered. The story of a new ascent should now be regarded as a corrupting communication, calculated to promote the glory of man, or perhaps only of individual men, at the expense of the mountains themselves. It may well be asked how, holding such opinions, I can set myself to the task of describing an attempt to reach the highest summit of all. Surely Chomolungmo should remain inviolate, or, if attempted, the deed should not be named. With this point of view I have every sympathy and lest it should be thought that in order to justify myself I must bring in a different order of reasons from some other plane, and involve myself in a digression even longer than the present, I will say nothing about justification for this story, beyond remarking that it glorifies Mount Everest, since this mountain has not yet been climbed. And when I say that sympathy in a mountaineer may wobble, the mountaineer I more particularly mean is the present writer. It is true that I did what I could to reach the summit, but now as I look back and see all those wonderful preparations, the great array of boxes collected at Paris Zong and filling up the courtyard of the bungalow, the train of animals and coolies carrying our baggage across Tibet, the thirteen selected Europeans so snugly wrapped in their woolen waistcoats and jaga pants their armour of windproof materials, their splendid overcoats, the furred finiscoes or felt sided boots or fleece lined moccasins devised to keep warm their feet, and the sixty strong porters with them delighting in underwear from England and leathern jerkins and patties from Kashmir, and then, unforgettable scene, the scatter of our stores at the base camp the innumerable neatly-made wooden boxes concealing the rows and rows of tins, of Harris's sausages, Hunter's hams, Heinz's spaghetti, Herring's soi-disant fresh, sardines, sliced bacon, peas, beans, and a whole forgotten host besides, sauce-bottles for the mess-tables, and the rare bottles more precious than these, the gay tins of sweet biscuits, ginger-nuts and rich-mixed, and all the carefully chosen delicacies. And besides all these, for our sustenance or pleasure, the fuel supply, uncovered in the centre of the camp, green and blue two-gallon cans of paraffin and petrol, and an impressive heap of dung, and the climbing equipment, the gay little tents with crimson flies or yellow, pitched here only to be seen and admired, the bundles of soft sleeping bags, soft as Eiderdown quilt can be, the ferocious crampons and other devices steel-pointed and terrible for boot's armament, the business-like coils of rope, the little army of steel cylinders containing oxygen under high pressure, and not least the warlike sets of apparatus for using the life-giving gas. And lastly, when I call to mind the whole begoggled crowd moving with slow determination over the snow and up the mountain slopes, and with such remarkable persistence bearing up the formidable loads, when after the lapse of months I envisage the whole prodigious evidences of this vast intention, how can I help rejoicing in the yet undimmed splendour, the undiminishing glory, the unconquered supremacy of Mount Everest? it is conceivable that this great mountain, though still unsubdued, may nevertheless have suffered some loss of reputation. It is the business of a mountain to be ferocious first, charming and smiling afterwards, if it will. But it has been said already of this mountain that the way to the summit is not very terrible, it will present no technical difficulties of climbing. Has it not then, after all, a character unsuitably mild, is it not a great cow among mountains it cannot be denied that the projected route to the summit presents no slopes of terrible steepness but we may easily underrate the difficulties even here though some of us have gazed earnestly at the final ridge and discussed at length the possibility of turning or of climbing direct certain prominent obstacles No one has certainly determined that he may proceed there without being obliged to climb difficult places, and the snow slope which guards the very citadel will prove, one cannot doubt, as steep as one would wish to find the final slope of any great mountain. Again, the way to the north col, that snow saddle by which alone we may gain access to the north ridge, has not always been simple. We know little enough still about its changing conditions. BUT EVIDENTLY ON TOO MANY DAYS THE SNOW WILL BE DANGEROUS THERE, AND PERHAPS ON MANY OTHERS THE PRESENCE OF bare ICE MAY INVOLVE MORE LABOUR THAN WAS REQUIRED OF US THIS YEAR. BUT GRANTED, THIS ONE breach IN THE DEFENSE OF MOUNT EVEREST, SHALL WE ONLY FOR THAT THINK OF IT AS A MILD MOUNTAIN? HOW MANY MOUNTAINS CAN BE NAMED IN THE ALPS OF WHICH SO SMALL A PART PRESENTS THE HOPE OF FINDING A WAY TO THE SUMMIT? Nowhere on the whole immense face of ice and rocks from the northeast ridge to L'Otse and the south-east ridge is the smallest chance for the mountaineer, and, leaving out all count of size, Mont Blanc even above the Brenva Glacier has no face so formidable as this. Of the southern side, which we know only from a few photographs and sketches, one thing is certain, that whoever reaches it will find there a terrific precipice of bare rock, probably unequalled for steepness by any great mountain face in the Alps, and immeasurably greater. The single glimpse obtained last year of the western glacier and the slopes above it revealed one of the most awful and utterly forbidding scenes ever observed by men, how much more encouraging, and yet how utterly hopeless, is the familiar view from the Rongbuk valley." Mount Everest, therefore, apart from its pre-eminence and bulk and height, is great and beautiful, marvellously built, majestic, terrible, a mountain made for reverence, and beneath its shining sides one must stand in awe and wonder. 2. When we think of a party of climbers struggling along the final ridge of Mount Everest, we are perhaps inclined to reject an obvious comparison of their endeavour with that of athletes in a long-distance race. The climbers are not, of course, competing to reach the goal one before another. The aim is for all to reach it. But the climbers' performance, like the runners, will depend on two factors, endurance and pace, and the two have to be considered together. A climber must not only keep on moving upwards, if he is to succeed, he must move at a certain minimum pace, a pace that will allow him, having started from a given point, to reach the top and come down in a given time. Further, at a great height, it is true for the climber, even more than for the runner on a track in England, that to acquire pace is the chief difficulty, and still more true that it is the pace which kills." Consequently, it is pace more than anything else which becomes the test of fitness on Mount Everest. Every man has his own standard, determined as a result of his experience. He knows perhaps that in the Alps, with favourable conditions, he is capable of ascending 1,500 feet an hour without unduly exerting himself and without fatigue, If he were to bring into action the whole of his reserves, he might be able to double this figure. He will assuredly find, when he comes up into Tibet, and leaves at a mean height of 15,000 feet, that he is capable of very much less. And then he begins to call in question his power, to measure himself against his European standard. Every member of both Everest expeditions was more or less of a valetudinarian. He had his eye on his physical fitness. He wondered each day, am I getting fitter? Am I as fit as I should expect to be in the Alps? And the ultimate taste was pace uphill. The simpler phenomena of acclimatisation have frequently been referred to in connection with Mount Everest. But still it may be asked why improvement should be expected during a sojourn at 15,000 feet. It is expected because, as a matter of experience, it happens. The wider red corpuscles in the blood, whose function is to absorb and give us oxygen, should multiply in the ratio of 8 to 5, I leave it to physiologists to explain. Whatever explanation they may give, I shall not cease to regard this amazing change as the best of miracles. And this change in the hemoglobin content of the blood evidently proceeds a long way above 15,000 feet. Nevertheless, the advantage thereby obtained by no means altogether compensates at very high altitudes the effects of reduced atmospheric pressure. It enables a man to live in very thin air 11.5 inches barometric pressure at 27,000 feet, but not to exert himself with anything like his normal power at sea level. His pace suffers. If at twenty three thousand feet he were able to exercise no less power than at ten thousand feet after a few well spent days in the Alps, he would probably be able to ascend the remaining six thousand feet to the summit in a single day. But if you cut off the supply of fuel, you cannot expect your engine to maintain its pace of working. The power exercised by the climber in the more rarefied atmosphere at these high altitudes must be less. A rise of six thousand feet in a day will be beyond his capacity. Therefore, he must have camps higher on the mountain, and ultimately he must have won so high that in nine or ten hours even his snail's pace will bring him to the summit. We must remember, too, that not only will his pace have suffered, his mind will be in a deplorable state. The experiments conducted in pressure chambers have a bearing on this point. I treasure the story of Professor Haldane, who, while in such a chamber, wanted to observe the colour of his lips, and for some minutes gazed into his mirror before discovering that he held the back towards his face. Mountaineers have often observed a lack of clarity in their mental state at high altitudes, It is difficult for the stupid mind to observe how stupid it is, but it is by no means improbable that the climbers of Mount Everest will try to drink their food, or proceed crab-wise, or do some quite ridiculous thing. And not only is it difficult to think straight in thin air, it is difficult to retain the desire to do anything at all. Perhaps, of all that tells against him, the mere weakness of a man's will when he is starved of oxygen is beyond everything likely to prevent his success. Since the problem of climbing Mount Everest presented itself physiologically, it was only natural in us on the expedition continually to be watching acclimatisation. We watched it in connection with the whole idea of being trained for the event. Probably each of us had a different notion as to how he should be trained, and some thought more about training than others. On this point I must confess a weakness. When I foresee an event in which my physical strength and condition are to count for so much, I am one of those who think more about training. I consider how I may add a cubit to my stature, and all the time I am half aware that I might spare myself the trouble of such futile meditations. Experience seems only to show that, provided I habitually eat well and sleep well and take a moderate amount of exercise, I can do nothing to improve my endurance on a mountain. Probably some men may do more to this end. The week we spent in Darjeeling sufficed for all of us to brace ourselves after the enervating effects of our journey from England. Norton, who had come out rather earlier and prepared himself in the most strenuous fashion for the immense exertions of the Kadir Cup, was already finely trained. Too well, I thought, for so lean a man. He and Joffrey Bruce, my companion in the first party, together with General Bruce, Longstaff, and Noel, elected to walk a great deal in Sikkim, and so I believe did Somerville, Wakefield, and Morsehead in the second party. The general, very frankly expressing the probable advantage to his figure of profuse perspiration in those warm valleys, also walked a great deal. For an exactly contrary reason, I hate the inconvenience that must arise on the march from wet clothes, I walked less than any of these. Probably Longstaff and I rode more than the rest up to paris But when I heard how wonderfully fit were the two most energetic walkers of our party, and learned from Geoffrey Bruce of Norton's amazing pace uphill, I could not refrain from testing my own condition on the first occasion that we approached a comparatively high altitude. Coming up to Natong, where the bungalow is situated above twelve thousand feet, I walked for all I was worth, and was well satisfied next day i felt far from well with indigestion and headache general bruce and longstaff were also unwell and it was a cheerless afternoon and evening in the two little rooms at kupup with hailstorms outside and too little light within norton and bruce elected to sleep on the veranda and these two with me if i were fit enough intended starting early next morning so as to climb a small mountain diverging thus from our path over the Jelepla, 14,500 feet, for the sake of the view. We set off not much later than we had intended, but it was now Norton's turn to be unwell, and he was probably mountain-sick 10,000 feet below the pass. However, we were not inclined to pay much attention to these little troubles, with a day's rest at a lower elevation 9,000 feet, and the pleasures of feasting with the Macdonalds in Yatung, we were quickly restored. The continuous process of acclimatisation was due to begin at Farizong. There we should stay three days above 14,000 feet, and after that our marches would keep us between that level and 17,000 feet, so that a man would surely find out how he was affected by living at high altitudes. At Fari the whole party seemed remarkably fit, and any amount of energy was available for sorting out and checking our vast mass of stores. But the conditions of travel on these high plains became evident so soon as we were on the march again. Those who gaily started to walk, not troubling to provide themselves with a pony, found after a time that they were glad enough to ride— But then it became so bitterly cold that riding was more disagreeable than walking, and most of us, as we pushed along in the teeth of a blizzard, preferred to walk, and were surprisingly fatigued. Two of the party were ill when we reached camp, but more perhaps from chill than mountain sickness. On the following day, a system of sharing ponies to allow alternate walking and riding was more carefully organized. Even so, most of us must have walked two-thirds of that long rough march, about twenty-five miles, and while crossing the Contertina Pass, as we called it, a name which explains itself, we had ample opportunities of testing our powers of walking uphill between sixteen thousand and seventeen thousand feet. It was evident that we were already becoming acclimatized and able to enjoy those mild competitions in which a man will test his powers against another as they breast the hill together. This was encouraging enough, but how far we were from going, as we would go at 10,000 feet lower, could easily be observed from our puffing and blowing and the very moderate pace achieved by great efforts. It was a week later before we had another opportunity of testing our acclimatisation, as we came up to the Tinki La, a rise of nearly 3,000 feet up to 17,000 feet. I suppose there may have been some slight improvement in this week. For my part, I was fairly fit, and after riding over the comparatively flat approach, walked up about 2,000 feet without a halt, and experienced no sort of fatigue. But the party as a whole was disappointing, and several members were distinctly affected by the height. Perhaps this pass was one of those places where some local circumstance emphasizes the altitude, for the ponies stopped and puffed in a way we had never seen before. But I fancy the reason of their condition was to be found in the steepness of the ascent. The day after crossing the Tinki-la, we had a short march to Gyangkar-Nangpa, and, coming across the flat basin, had full in view before us Sankari, a prominent rock-peak the most northerly of a remarkable range above the left bank of the Arun River. The desire to vary the routine of the daily march by climbing a mountain had already stirred a number of suggestions among us, and now the opportunity seemed to offer itself. We were further incited by the prospect of a splendid view of Mount Everest if we could reach this summit which lay not so very far out of our way." No doubt, unconscious motives too promoted our attempt on Sankari. The pleasures of mountaineering must always be restricted for those who grapple with the highest mountains, if not denied in toto. But the ascent of a little rock peak of twenty thousand feet might help to keep alive in us some appreciation of mountaineering as an enjoyable pursuit. And then we wanted confidence in ourselves. At present we could only feel how unequal we were to the prodigious task in front of us, so were we urged to try conclusions with Sankari to put ourselves to the test. The project demanded a high camp, at 17,000 feet, nearly 4,000 feet above Kian Kang Nangpa. Seeing that it would clearly be undesirable to employ more than a very small number of porters to carry up tents and sleeping bags for the night, Somervell and I at first made a plan for ourselves alone, but when it was found that two others wanted to come with us, this plan was amplified to include them, and it was arranged that the four of us should sleep at close quarters in a whimper tent. The porters who carried for us in the evening would take down their burdens in the early morning, in time to get them loaded on to the animals at Gyankar without delaying the main body the establishment of our camp did not proceed without some little difficulty. One of the porters gave out and had to be relieved of his load, and it was not until we had contoured a hillside for an hour in the dark that we found a suitable place. So soon as we had lain down in our tent, a bitter wind sprang up and blew in at the door. The night was one of the coldest, I remember. End of chapter 4, part 1